0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Klon Kitchen. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a former national security advisor to Senator Ben Sass, a 15-year veteran of the intelligence community, and the author of the fantastic newsletter, The Kitchen Sink. That's S-Y-N-C. It is fabulous. And this week, we are talking China. Dive right in. Uh, You wrote a piece for the dispatch, actually, and you asked a few questions to yourself that I would like to pose back to you from yourself. (laughs) Um, And perhaps you can catch us up on a little of the news coming out of China in the last week. What does this hypersonic missile test capability mean for the balance of power between the United States and China? Are we now officially in a Cold War? And are U.S. companies and technologies assisting China's military rise were just some of the questions you asked. So let's just dive into your thoughts on China.
1: Yeah. So uh, with the the recent hypersonic uh, missile test, the reporting is unclear. And so it's a little difficult to assess the actual kind of capabilities impact of all this. There's some sense that there was some novel thing about this approach that the Chinese did, but it's it's not been made clear what it really is. We can get into more technical details, if you like, as we talk about it. But I think a, the best way to understand it is like from a technical standpoint, this isn't new, but it is important, right? So this this is a capability but that the United States and Russia and, and, and other countries have been pursuing for a while. So it's so not a surprise that the Chinese were doing this. They do seem to have done something peculiar. Again, I don't know what that is that got our attention. But what I think it illustrates more broadly, and this goes to the Cold War question, is that the U.S. and China are definitely assuming more aggressive postures toward one another, and that one of the implications of that is a technological and and, and military, you know, arms race, for lack of a better word. And uh, hypersonics uh, are attractive because they they are um, they will help a a military overcome. missile defense systems, uh, particularly the way the United States has built theirs. Uh, and so it's not really a surprise that China would be pursuing that. If you want to call this a cold war, I think you can, uh, cold war is not really a technical term. It's just something that we've used to refer to the, um, you know, the 46 years or so of, of confrontation and low level conflict between the United States and China, um, but again, I think the underlying point is that the relationship between the United States has materially changed. For a long time, we made a cosmic bet that if we deepened our economic integration, that that would lead to uh, domestic freedom uh, inside China. That was a fine bet. That, that wasn't Pollyannish. It was, a, it was a good thought, but it's proven, I think, to, be, um, to have been a failure. Uh, and so we're definitely in something uh, as it regards, uh, China, we're, we're definitely, uh, moving toward a, a a more confrontational and sustained, um, the postures between the two nations are, are more confrontational and that has all kinds of ripple effects down, down policy.
0: So to use the old Facebook relationship status, it's complicated.
1: It's complicated. (laughs) Uh,
0: okay. Real quick. Maybe I am a technical nerd or maybe I'm actually the opposite, but can you explain real quick, We've talked about supersonic jets and things, and then now this is a hypersonic missile. What is the distinction we're making between the two?
1: Hyper's just cooler than super.
0: Got it. Uh, yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> now, so, okay. So when we talk about hypersonic vehicles, what we're talking about are things that are going typically five times the speed of of, of sound. And there's three kind of platforms or, or capabilities when we talk about hypersonics. The first one is a hypersonic cruise missile, which is just an air launch. It's a missile, right? It flies in the atmosphere. It's got an engine. It uses what's called a scramjet engine. Uh, and it's just like a cruise missile. It just goes faster, right? Um, the second thing uh, is what we call a a, uh, a fractional orbital um, bomb or, or, or fob. Um, what that does is, is it's a... Um, there's a, a missile launch. It takes the hypersonic vehicle into space. Uh, it releases that vehicle. And then the vehicle kind of bounces off of the Earth's atmosphere until it comes, you know, essentially above its target. And then it enters what's called a terminal um, uh, trajectory onto its target. But the the interesting thing there is that because it bounces off of the Earth's atmosphere, it's able to kind of go longer distances. All right the other one is a, a hypersonic glide vehicle. The difference there is is it, it doesn't bounce off the atmosphere, it just it reenters the atmosphere and essentially glides to its target but is able to maneuver, right? So the big difference between all three of these things and say an intercontinental ballistic missile is the maneuverability part. So an ICBM essentially has a a, a parabolic or, you know, an up and down um, trajectory, hypersonics are able to maneuver. They tend to hide uh, in the atmosphere, which means it's really hard to detect with, with radar, uh, and their maneuverability makes it much more to intercept. Okay. The weird thing so, those are the three kind of hypersonic things. The, the weird thing about what happened with China is recently is maybe they kind of combined aspects of the, the, the FOB, that, that fractional orbital piece and a traditional glide vehicle, which from a technical standpoint would be pretty impressive just from like a systems integration perspective. But in terms of actually building new capability, it doesn't really get you much. So it's it's like a really, really sophisticated mouse trap, but it doesn't necessarily kill the mouse more effectively. So with with the way press reporting is on all this right now, it, it's unclear what happened. It just, it's gotten everybody's attention and and people like me are trying to figure it out.
0: And just real quick follow-up, and how do all three of those um, defeat traditional defense mechanisms? So uh,
1: when we talk about missile defense, well, number one, the United States is the only one who's really deployed a missile defense system, like, at the level we have. Um, And at the end of the day, you're trying to shoot a bullet with a bullet, right? So that's really hard. Um, uh, We've gotten better at it, but even, even our system is, you know, iffy. With an ICBM, because of its um, kind of fixed trajectories, it's much easier to detect uh, and to kind of predict where it's going to be and then intercept. Uh, the maneuverability of hypersonics makes that a billion times harder, right? Because it's it there's there's no way to kind of predict where it, where it's moving, uh, and again, because um, at the at the most critical phase, it's operating within the Earth's atmosphere, which means it essentially uses the Earth's horizon to hide it from ground-based radar, which is what um, our system depends on. And then finally, with, with with the FOB system specifically, they you could theoretically travel far enough to where all of our missile defense systems are pointed at the North Pole, but this would allow uh, the Chinese potentially at least to launch one of those through the South Pole where we have much less coverage.
0: Steve, I want to spend the rest of the podcast on this. We'll go into some quantum computing. Like, forget China. <laughs> I've changed my mind. All right, kind of kidding. You can go.
2: We can we can have him back. Okay. Um, let me. A lot of the headlines about this um, alleged hypersonic capability. Uh, related to the ability to li- to deliver nuclear weapons. Um, and those are headlines for a reason. Uh, that's really scary anytime you're talking about that kind of a potential leap in nuclear weapons delivery. Um, but these missiles would undoubtedly have uh, significant conventional weapons capabilities and and importance as well. Is that right? And if that is, what how should we think about the potential use cases in conventional
1: weaponry? Yeah, so with a lot of these things, and and certainly this is the case with hypersonics, it's not that it does anything unique, right? I mean, there's lots of ways that a nuke can be delivered. There's lots of ways that you can blow up things with more traditional means. I think the, the big takeaway is that China appears to be diversifying the ways it can do this. And this is very much a system... Tailored to overcome a a a strategic capability that we have in missile defense, right? So, um, the fact that they exceed our capability potentially on hypersonics, generally speaking, that's not a that's not a good thing, just because of what it says about their ability to innovate and 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 you know kind of vis-a-vis our abilities. That being said, it's not a category it's not a category change for them. It's it's that. Okay, their the the depth of their ability to imperil U.S. interests and people is 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 growing, and and that's a problem. Given that broader political context that I was describing, but you know, I mean, they've still got nuclear uh, ICBM carrying submarines that can park off our coast, and they are hard to find. Uh, they've got intercontinental ballistic missiles, um, so. A lot of people. the The, the conversations so far is kind of divided between people are saying, "Oh my gosh, this is Sputnik," you know, red lights flashing, everybody kind of run. And the other group, which is kind of a, a reaction to all that, which says, "Look, this this is no big deal, right? This doesn't categorically change anything." And and I, you know, as as often as the case, I'm kind of landing in the middle and saying, like, no, 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 it's not novel. It is important, and it's important because of. Kind of what it implies more broadly. Um, that being said, you know if they were to continue, they did something. You know the, the reporting says that they somehow defied the laws of physics, and it's hard to assess the import of that, not knowing what that really means. And so they did something that got our attention, and I would love to. I would love to know what that is.
2: Yeah, there's there's a, um, a series of comments from Professor Caitlin Tomich, Georgetown professor at Brookings. Uh, institution fellow, and she says China's been engaging both quantitative nuclear expansion, nuclear silos, as well as qualitative improvements. This isn't surprising given their power. More surprising is that it hadn't happened actually. And then this is, I think, the the key part. But improvements to China's nuclear arsenal today come against a backdrop of worsening relationship with the U.S. and other powers, threatening behavior towards neighbors, especially Taiwan, and tremendous growth in Chinese conventional forces. And then this is the kicker. China is not gearing up for some kind of bolt from the blue nuclear strike against the u.s but it looks a lot like china wants to be sure that the u.s can't use nuclear weapons to coerce china in a conventional crisis or war that china might start or stumble into does that does that get at the context that you're talking about
1: yeah it does and i'll tell you so i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna give you a scenario um and I, i I want to be clear of what this is. This is me kind of blue skying thinking. I I don't, there's probably problems with this, but I'll give you an example that I think illustrates her point. Uh, If China were able to build a hypersonic vehicle, a a nuclear uh, capable hypersonic vehicle that could loiter in the earth's atmosphere, so not leave the atmosphere, but actually kind of circle the earth indefinitely, and then be, you know, kind of, Pushed onto a target when they wanted to. You could imagine that Beijing decides, okay, we're going to move against Taiwan, but before we do, we're going to launch that vehicle and put it in atmosphere and have it circling. And the the US is going to know that it's there, but they won't know where it is at any given time in the atmosphere. And that's just kind of a little bit of a loaded gun, like, okay, we're going to make this move now on Taiwan. You're going to have to now factor the fact that we have a deployed nuclear weapon in the Earth's atmosphere that we can use if things really go sideways. Now, Again, I'm not saying that's their intent. I'm not even saying that that's the capability they've achieved. But it's the kind of thing that goes to I think the point that um, the the Brookings scholar that you referenced there was making is that they are uh, the Beijing is is seeking to build its strategic depth and it and its kind of freedom of movement as it regards the policies it wants to pursue, and and preventing the United States from being able to coerce it and and, and compel it into things it doesn't want to do. Yeah, well, and if that scenario that you just laid out
2: were to come to pass, it dramatically changes the the U.S. calculus in virtually every respect because, I mean, it is a loaded gun scenario and – you can't, in in terms of nuclear diplomacy, make the assumption that China would be bluffing uh, on something like Taiwan. How, how much? Again, a context question here. I mean, she made reference to to belligerent moves on on Taiwan. We've seen um, the the news on on additional silos. Um, we've seen sort of incredibly hostile rhetoric coming from. Uh, senior Chinese military and national security officials—the kind of hostile rhetoric—I don't think has has quite penetrated here in the U.S. I mean, the things that they are saying are are incredibly aggressive. How much, you know, as somebody who spent a lot of time in in uh, the intelligence world, how much does the intelligence community pay attention to rhetoric like that? public source information more broadly? And how much should we pay attention to
1: that? Well, I think you always pay attention to it. It's a matter of how much weight it's given in, in the assessment, right? So to the degree that it lines up with, um, with what you're seeing in other reporting channels, you know, and, it, and it's confirmatory, well, then you say, okay, well, <laughs> we need to listen to them. This makes sense. If it's 180 degrees out from what you're seeing in, in other reporting channels, then you go, okay, so this is either, you know, some type of a head fake or some type of public relations uh, or public diplomacy effort, not specifically an explanation of of capability. Uh, and so that's always dependent upon how good your collection posture is, right? So, so you you have, to have a, a, you have to have kind of an intellectual horizon or, or point of reference to hold that up against to, to judge its worth. That's the challenge. Now, the, the the thing that we're facing is is our collection posture in China has been degraded significantly over the last decade and a half. I mean, massive. Because why? Why has that happened? Well, we have a, a couple of things. Uh, one, it's just gotten technically harder. Um, two, I say it got technically harder because, in part, one of the things that happened after the Edward Snowden illegal disclosures, uh, the Chinese got a hold of of what we were doing and how we were doing it, and they've hardened themselves significantly against it. The other thing is, is that we had a um, uh, a, a a spy uh, in our midst who helped the Chinese obliterate our our intelligence network in China, and we're still not recovered from it. So our posture's been hurt significantly. Um, we do have a whole you know um, category of intelligence uh, uh, of people who do psychological assessments on foreign leaders uh, who listen to what they say. Who assess what it indicates from a uh, from a psychological perspective, and, and what you know? It's always hard to know how to factor that kind of stuff in, though. So I guess all the bottom line on that is my general posture on things like this is like when your enemy talks, listen, and if if they're kind enough to tell you their intentions, you know, take them at their word unless you have good reason not to. Um, I do think that there is a a, a type of Um, you know, this whole wolf warrior diplomacy thing that they're doing on Twitter and more broadly, I think, I think they, they are convinced that they can stand up to the United States in a way that they could not previously. I I think there is a growing awareness or or sense within the Chinese military that, um, of their growing capability and power. and, And I think they think that means they, they don't have to be pushed around, um, but a lot of you know my colleagues at AI, two people who are who know more about this than I ever will. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's there's uh, senior fellow uh, Oriana Schuyler Maestro, who says China's ascendant, and you know they could make a move on Taiwan in the next five to ten years because they seem, if you look at their reporting, to be concluding that they can do it militarily. They they actually think they can actually pull it off, uh, and so that makes them more dangerous. And then on the other side of the spectrum is, is my other colleague, uh, Hal Brands, who says, no, China's actually a peak. They've already peaked and they're on their inevitable decline. But that makes them more, more scary right now, too, because they understand their window of opportunity is closing and that you know they're, they're likely to be more aggressive in the near to midterm because of that.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify Turning a little bit to the domestic side of this, you have Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, giving what was an odd statement. I'm going to read the whole thing because I think context is important. I can say and echo what he said, which is generally speaking, we have made clear our concern about the military capabilities that the PRC continues to pursue. And we've been consistent in our approach with China. We welcome stiff competition but we do not want that competition to veer into conflict, and that is certainly what we convey privately as well. So the guys and I talked about this on Wednesday, and basically no one could defend we welcome stiff competition to a potential or current military rival. Can you steel man that a little for us? Can you give us some version of why that might be okay to say?
1: Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. That to me is such a... I, I like I, it's one of those things where I immediately want to think, okay, that was an off the cuff remark that she obviously reject or, you know, regrets and, and, and should have made it at the same time. She's clearly reading from a, a notebook of talking points. So somebody thought that was a good point to make. I, I think it was, uh, I, I hope that it doesn't actually reflect a, a, a broadly held perspective in the Biden administration. um, But it was it was unbelievably dumb and makes no sense.
0: So that is part of my next question. Have you seen a shift from uh, the Trump administration to the Biden administration in terms of their attitude towards China, either because of a change of administration or a change in facts on the ground and what that has meant for the intel community behind the scenes?
1: So rhetorically, well, okay. So generally speaking, uh, I think there's been a great deal of uh, of continuity between the two administrations as it regards China. Uh, and in the early days, uh, it was it was kind of nice in terms of um, the, the the political rhetoric coming out of the White House had had become more serious and 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 consistent and reliable. That being said, this this far into the administration, I'm not seeing a lot of there there. You know, that's the problem. Like they're talking about it and, you know, we're going to do a strategy and we're going to do a review and we're going to engage. But in terms of actual policy implementation, mm, we're not seeing much yet. Um, now, if I were to, if I were to give them a little bit of cover, I would say, well, there's been a number of things that have happened <laughs> that would draw the resources away from some of this, whether it be Afghanistan or the ransomware and other cyber uh, events that have occurred. So it's not like the say these people aren't busy. Nevertheless. Um, I often say, you know, China is the policy that we're either going to get right or we're going to get a lot of things wrong. And so you can't just keep pushing this off and and, you know, kind of claiming you're busy. You, you got to execute. And look, I think there's some indicators that there's some real policy divides between the foreign policy, and national security side of the of the administration and, and, and some of the economic side. Uh, we, we've had different parts of the administration kind of negotiating publicly about, you know, where they want to see the emphasis and, and what they want the general approach to be on China. And I think that confuses things. And um, it's the kind of thing that they need to get serious about.
2: We've obviously uh, paid a lot of attention collectively to uh, China's cyber capabilities and and their ability to kind of wreak havoc. Um, you know, in conversations that I was having before the 2020 election, when we were talking about the potential for uh, electoral mischief. Um, a number of people I talked to said China certainly has the capability to, to, to do serious harm um, to our electoral processes, but we should take some comfort in the fact that they don't think it would be in their interest to meddle in that way, in part because they benefit from our stability to a certain extent, um, in part because they don't want Uh, some kind of uh, cyber intrusion, cyber attacks that could be easily attributed to China. How should we think about our vulnerability with respect to China and cyber right now? Uh,
1: So they're, they're eminently capable. um, And they have a different strategic culture than say the Russians. Uh, And I think that difference helps us understand a little bit of, of uh, how they approach things. So, one are uh, we we have made significant improvements since 2016 in the security of our electoral systems, the actual boxes and the the counting of votes. That we've 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 done a lot there. That being said, uh, a a focused enemy could still screw with that and and give us headaches. But I think I suspect that one of the the lessons learned for China and Russia, frankly, is that you don't have to. You don't have to do that, right? You don't have to kind of cross the line of actually changing votes uh, to really screw with the Americans. You just there's so many um, easier ways to undermine American confidence in the legitimacy of the of the systems themselves. I mean, that's what we're looking at right now, right? That you don't have to actually cross the line of of changing bits and bytes uh, on on any kind of a voting box. Instead, you just keep doing uh, the uh, the, the propaganda efforts uh, and, and seeding doubt in American electoral legitimacy and you get, you know, all the bang for your buck with with much less risk. So that's that's what I think the general takeaway on, on what's happened since 2016 is um, the Russians relative to the Chinese. Part of their whole strategic culture is is to show themselves as not being afraid of the Americans, and so when they go and do these computer network operations, they're they're typically deliberately loud, right? They 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 want the people in the house to hear them stomping uh, on the on the floor, so that you're scared and you know they're around, and it makes them seem you know omnipresent and big. The Chinese typically don't operate that way; they're much more stealthy. They they tend to um, try to build advantage uh, for the sake of leveraging it later. But the underlying reality of it all is, is that in cyber, you know, the American capability is just nuanced and sophisticated and elegant. I mean, our cyber ninjas are just amazing, but you don't have to be that elegant to be effective. And um, while the Chinese certainly are, uh, they, the key capability that they offer that no one really holds a candle to is just scale they just have more operators than anybody else. And they're just able to flood the zone in a way that frankly, we, and, and no one else can.
2: You anticipated my next question. I mean, that, that, I mean, you're just talking to, to people who know um, loads about this more than I do. The one thing that, um, and this is going back several years that, that has sort of stuck with me is that they sort of live everywhere. Um, and, and this is true, not only in our, our government networks, and we've seen the results of that. Um, But also in in the private sector, Uh, I was having a conversation with someone who uh, worked in cybersecurity for a big bank um, several, several years ago. And this person said, it used to be the case that we did everything we could to keep the Chinese out. But we crossed a threshold at one point where we recognized that that was a losing battle. We couldn't do that. So now we understand and sort of recognize that they live in our systems. And we try to do everything we can to keep them from extracting information, causing damage while they're, they're inside. Is that the right way to think about that? That was a couple of years ago. Is that, a, is that an outdated way of looking at it or is that an apt description of where these private sector uh, battles are are right now?
1: Yeah. So this is the genesis of, of what's called zero trust networking. It's the idea of of like, look, the the, the enemy... The barriers to entry are so low, and and all of the freedom of movement benefits the 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 enemy, not the not the defender. And so you be you were trying to develop networking strategies that are predicated on the notion of I okay, assume I'm compromised. Okay, how do I secure myself then? Um, and yeah, uh, you know the, the the Chinese have been a huge part of it. Now the reason why it seems like they live everywhere is because they live everywhere. Right, I mean, they've got they, they've again. We, you know, the, just in terms of scale of operations, it's it's unbelievable. But what that what that means for for us is we can't we, we're just not in a position to outcompete them on on scale like that. And that's why the United States is tending toward AI enabled cybersecurity defenses. It's why we're automating a lot of this threat hunting, threat mitigation, threat removal, that kind of thing. Uh, and those are far from, you know, kind of being ready. But but it's something that um, the threat demands of us. And and that's where you're seeing industry lead out, frankly, because um, they're being hit, as you said. And all of this, it used to be, there used to be a Chinese strategy called the thousand grains of sand strategy, where the idea was they were going after any and uh, all pieces of data that they could with the understanding that it was all relevant, no matter what it was, and that it could be um Uh, pulled into a mosaic of intelligence that they could use, you know, at some point in the future. That, in the modern sense now, is they're going after highly encrypted information that they can't necessarily crack right now, but still hoovering it up based on the presupposition that future computing capabilities like quantum and other things will allow them to leverage that material in the future. So right now it's get everything you can while you can, figure out how to use it later. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people will say, well, why would the Chinese want my, you know, you know, my, my Equifax score, or why would they want my Anthem insurance information? What are they gonna do with that? Uh, well, maybe they don't know yet, but I can tell you if you gave me that access, I could, I could do a lot of damage with it. And, um, and so that I think helps us understand their approach to it.
0: Well, that was maybe the most terrifying uh, thing we've talked about so far, but let's see if we can't do better. Um, looking forward about what Xi is really, uh, aiming toward, we've seen just this year, quite recently, this private sector crackdown that's been going on in China, which is uh, at least credited in part with driving down some of their GDP growth of late. So we know that that is not simply growing their economy is not the end goal. Um, uh, by the way, amazing morning dispatch, uh, this morning, this is, uh, Thursday morning, that I thought was the best write up of uh, sort of the big picture China thing, but it included this last part, which I was like, well, huh. Um, and it said, even after experiencing a 3.5% downturn in 2020, the American economy remains more than 40% larger than China's and more than 500% larger on a per capita basis. And that to me put it again into a s- stark um, contrast of ah, Xi's point, at least in the short term, is not to overtake the American economy. And so I'm curious, therefore, that that is scary to me, because I understand someone who simply wants to grow their economy. I'm not sure I understand, then, what Xi's doing.
1: So this, again, is another one of those issues where China hands are are a little bit divided. um, And and I'm still wrestling with kind of where I come down on this. So one argument says... That uh, she is a uh, a, a true uh, Leninist believer, who um has who thinks that their economy has transitioned from you know the utility of, of their form of of managed capitalism and now is moving toward a more pure form of socialism, and that you know the rhetoric surrounding uh, social justice and economic prosperity or uh, economic equity and things like that are now coming into the uh, into play, and then if that's the case, it becomes Uh, You know, like I'm kind of here for that. If that's the case, because I think I think it it is very likely to stall the economic engine that has fueled the Chinese rise. Uh, I mean, they have
0: wild income inequality. Like we talk about income inequality in this country, it ain't nothing compared to what's going on in China.
1: Well, that's true, and and simultaneously, that system over the last 40 years has moved more people into the middle class than has ever been done ever before in history. You know, so like it's one of these weird dynamics right but the question is is like so if, th- if this is the case if she's a true believer and he's making this pivot toward a more explicitly socialist model and he does begin to kind of put a chokehold on his economy then the question becomes like okay so when everything starts grinding to a halt and that begins to affect his ability to govern what does he do right does he double down on the revolution or does he become more pragmatic and kind of open up the spigots okay so that's that's one view and and kind of the t- to be seen aspect of that. The other side would be articulated by my colleague, Derek scissors, who says, look, this is a temporary crackdown and it's all about. She reasserting political dominance and making sure everybody understands that it doesn't matter if you're Alibaba. It doesn't matter if you're 10 cent. It doesn't matter if you're, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the one of the largest, uh, re, uh the development companies, uh, the point is, Thank you, uh, Evergrande. Um, that you cannot be an alternative power center to the government, and I will crack whatever whip I need to to make you understand that. Um, and you know, so Derek argues that the best way to understand what's going on is not that there's been some type of significant long-term strategic pivot economically in China, but that this is a a temporary political exercise, and uh, that once everybody kind of understands their role again expect she to you know start loosening the reins a little bit again um, I don't know which one of those is the case uh, I do think that what China is trying to do is is prove the, the feasibility of a new model of governance that marries up the wealth of their form of, of economic um, well previously uh, economic um, capitalism, with authoritarianism, the stability and security of, 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 of authoritarianism, and that technology is is the key variable in realizing both of those aims. And that if they can actually prove the viability of that model, I think that could easily become the chief export along China's Belt and Road Initiative. I think there would be a ton of, of would-be dictatorships signing up for, um, you know, to be these kind of wealthy, techno-totalitarian companies and I think China would sell that in a box, right? I think they would have. We'll build your networks. We'll be, we'll give you the boxes that make this all work, and we'll even give you the predatory loans to to do it. Um, so I, I think I think this is a real serious game. You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it's all going to play out, but um, I think it's real.
0: So, at uh, with our economy still 40 percent larger than theirs, we've already seen so many of our American companies react to China as a. Um, Uh, marketplace and what that has caused internally to our country, I'm curious if they do continue to grow, which they are, um, at what point, what is that tipping point? It's probably not just parity. It's probably something pre-parity with our GDP. And do you have any thoughts on what that will look like for us economically?
1: So just to make sure I understand in terms of if, if we see U.S. companies continuing to prioritize the Chinese market, what that means for us?
0: And the Chinese GDP grows even larger so that maybe uh, we're only 20% bigger or maybe it's that we're 10% bigger. Like, where is that tipping point where our day-to-day, it's not just that we're complaining that the NBA doesn't care about the Uyghurs, it's that now the NBA doesn't care about the American market at all.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, look, I would say we're already at a point where let's not wait for that moment where that's kind of undeniable and irresistible. I would say, okay, let's just, you know, I I said in the piece that I wrote for you guys, tech companies particularly, it's time to choose a flag. I mean, because of the way, uh, and and I'm a free market guy, just to be very clear, and and I'm not advocating for, you know, what what some people would kind of passingly call um, uh, industry policy, Um, I'm simply saying, or industrial policy, I'm simply saying that the way the Chinese government is operating introduces massive distortions into the free market economy. Those distortions not only have an economic implication, they're increasingly having a national security implication. And, you know, you can't, we we, we can't keep enabling this, we can't absorb that. At the point where their market actually becomes, you know, re- let's say, as you said, reduces us from being 40% to 20%. Well, that's a real problem, right? I mean, like, Our economic engine is one of our key capabilities that allows us to operate the way we do globally. And I think the globe, generally speaking, benefits from that. Uh, So to the degree that that influence is uh, reduced, I think that's bad for everybody. And it's certainly bad for American interests. Bringing the conversation full circle.
2: I mean, there is, um, and, and you made reference to this in your piece. U.S. tank companies have played a, a, a role in the growth of Chinese military capabilities and, and not, a, not an insignificant role. Um, when you say choose a flag, uh, talking to U.S. companies, what does that look like from a policy
1: perspective? What, what's the mechanism there? Yeah. So this is an act of conversation that is, you know, difficult to navigate because we have some we have some first principles that are in play here that we want to be very careful with in in terms of free market economics and and you know the the, the freedom of, of of the private sector to to pursue some of these things. At the same time, when I talk about choosing a flag, what my strong preference would be that um, that private sector companies recognize both the economic and reputational risks that they're assuming. In in by operating in China, so Chinese uh, cyber and national security law makes it very clear that there is no there's there's no keeping any information from the Chinese government. I mean, like actual encryption and, and virtual private networks and other things that have been used in the past to uh, to to hide uh, U.S. company data in China. Those are all illegal, and they have to become into compliance. And if you're not in compliance, then you're not going to be in the market. And and that's just that's just it. So. Um, I like the ideas uh, of of shifting some of the burden to the companies themselves. So, for example, I could imagine a scenario where companies have to self-certify that none of their technologies, talent, or intellectual property is used is being used by the Chinese government to uh, for gross human rights violations or something like that, right? And leaving it ambiguous uh, and not giving them, you know, kind of the the, the discreet ways that that's going to be assessed. Just understanding that, look, at, at any given point. The U.S. intelligence community may assess, you know what, that algorithm you built is now, you know, moving people in Wuhan or in in Xinjiang uh, into uh, internment camps. And we're going to hold you responsible for that. So it's just saying, in effect, just putting
2: them on notice, in effect, saying we're paying attention.
1: Exactly right. And and would the
2: consequences um, be... Threatened explicitly, or or would this be something that would be best done legislatively, or is this something that happens kind of out of the, the public eye? I mean, a, a, apart from the reputational interest, which obviously would would have to take place in in the public eye.
1: Uh, I like the idea of an, uh, of an incremental approach with legislation being kind of like the the last straw. Like, if it's much better for everybody if we just come to an agreement and industry decides that they're just going to fix this or, or or take it on, right? um that being said uh you know so long as they think that money's flying out of the sky in china they've got real challenges and some companies are indifferent and they drive me crazy um others they make good they make legitimate points you know they they could say like look you know even if my ceo decides they're going to get out of china their board is going to be frustrated about the fiduciary, you know, implications of that choice and they won't be around long enough to actually implement it. That's not entirely wrong, right? That's, that's, that's true. Uh, And that's where maybe we can provide and where I try to provide a little bit of that context for people to start justifying those decisions. So a lot of these companies are looking for us government legislative action so they can point and say, look, I don't have a choice. So maybe we need to create that, right? But if we do that, we need to be very careful about that. Um, look, we're we're just moving into a place where um, all the easy decisions have been made and the only stuff that's left is hard. And uh, I get that. I'm not indifferent to it. But uh, I also don't think we can ignore it just because it's hard. And that's, it
2: seems to me, again, with somebody without uh, tremendous expertise in this area, it seems to me like that's the stage that we're at right now where we're just choosing not to have these conversations, more or less. They're difficult conversations. We'd rather put them off. I mean, it's, you know, it's like anything in your day-to-day life. I've got to make a difficult decision. I've got to have a difficult conversation. I'm just going to wait until tomorrow to do it. I'm going to wait until... Next week to do it, and then you wake up and and you look and the 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 problem has gotten considerably worse because you haven't taken that step at a time when you can do some planning and some thinking about it
1: and that's where she's actually been one of our biggest helps right his aggression and some of the things that he has done over the last couple of years are kind of forcing the issue in d c uh and uh, so in that sense, um you know yay. All right, yay!
2: That's a that's a happy way to end. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're gonna we're gonna leave the China discussion at yay with just like its own emoji. Uh, it should be at least Klon saying yay. Um, all right, but a most important question for last: Who is better at their job, Ethan Hunt or James Bond?
1: Both of them are completely fake and nowhere close to reality. I mean, I think you, I think just for longevity, you got to go with Bond.
0: Yeah. That's
1: And I'm a Daniel Craig fan. I like I don't know him personally. I don't know what he's like <laughs> as a as a person, but in terms of Bond, I thought his Bond is the best Bond with Sean Connery a very close second.
0: Do you have a favorite fictionalized intel movie, TV show or book that you recommend?
1: I hate them all. I mean you just hate the Well, they're just not they they it's you know, I know, The Company.
0: You didn't like the book, The Company? Did you read that one? I, I, no.
1: haven't, I haven't read The Company. I, I just, anytime I read or see somebody opening uh, or, or using a cell phone at CIA headquarters, I'm immediately just like, oh, okay. Yeah, this right, is
2: <laughs> right. This was my problem with House of Cards. I was in two, ep- two or three episodes and just thought none of this is anything like Washington. Of course, that was, you know, five years ago or whatever. When it became, it, it started to look more and more like Washington. Uh, I, by the way, just full disclosure, I had to, I just looked up on my phone Ethan Hunt. Oh I did not God. know who that
1: was. This is impossible. I did oh, know on, James. I, I knew James Bond. I mean, give oh, me okay, credit great. for that. Um, well, m- what most people don't know is that Washington's a lot more like Veep than it is House of Cards. I still haven't <laughs> seen Veep. I need to do yeah. that. Uh,
0: so, uh, thereby, I'm going to assume that um, Washington is a lot like Homeland, the Washington Intel community. That was really realistic. No, Terrible.
1: <laughs> they got, they got some things closer to right, but it's, you know, but Intel generally speaking is kind of a long, boring process, right? It's, it's, it's just, it's rigorous. And it's, I've once heard somebody say Intel is like putting together a puzzle. That's just a, that's all black, uh, With no lights on, and you're missing a piece. That's (laughs) That's pretty good, actually. I've watched that
0: movie. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Klon. This was uh, really helpful and only a little uh, depressing slash terrifying.
1: No, thanks, guys.